Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're once again diving into the world of mergers and acquisitions, this time regarding the Sony acquisition of Bungie for the purchase price of $3.6 billion. Or is it? Certainly the internet has its own thoughts on that, as we will discuss in today's video. Now, before we do, I want to point out that we have covered a number of aspects of this deal in videos here in virtual legality, including this one on your screen right now, Sony to acquire Bungie, the deal that came for the moon. And as part of that video, we analyzed all the press releases and statements that came out regarding this acquisition, including a significant bit of language, which we highlighted in our initial analysis that goes a little something like this. The total consideration of this transaction is 3.6 billion US dollars, inclusive of purchase price and committed employee incentives. Now it's pretty unusual in a press statement like this one to highlight that committed employee incentives, what I've labeled here as retention pay or retention bonuses, is included in the overall price of the transaction. So they're announcing $3.6 billion, some significant portion of which is going to go to effectively making sure that employees stay at Bungie. Now, if that sounds unusual to you, it shouldn't in any merger or acquisition context, especially when you're buying an operational company that you want to remain operational. The big worry on the acquisition side is you can't force people to work. So if you pay all of this money for this entity and everybody leaves on day one, what is it that you actually purchased? So when you're going to buy something, especially in a creative endeavor, one of the things that you protect against if you're Sony or you're Microsoft or heck, if you're the mom and pop down the street that wants to expand into a new area of business is to make sure that the people that make that company what it is wind up staying. And this becomes an even grander proposition when we talk about companies where the employees own a majority of the equity interest. What does that mean? It means the employees at that company are going to get the bulk of the purchase price that you paid for it. Now, I don't know about you, but if I suddenly came into millions of dollars, I would reevaluate my life choices. I would consider how I want to spend my day. Yes, I think virtual legality would still exist because I love doing this. I love having these conversations with you all, but I can't promise you that every other aspect of my life would remain unchanged. And so the folks that work at Bungie, as we will see, own a significant portion of the Bungie stock, which means that at least a fair few of them are going to have that reevaluation inflection point. And those fair few are likely the ones that are the most important to making Bungie what it is. And if you like them, that's great. If you don't, it's making them that as well. But either way, Sony wants to buy an operational entity with the institutional knowledge that can give it live game services and technology expertise. So they look at this and say, we want to make sure that we are retaining the people that work at this company. But by including it in the press statement, one of the things we noted in that first video is that it must be a substantial amount. And indeed it is. But some folks are reporting on it in an unusual way. So first, let's start out with the financial statements of Sony. These were issued, I believe, on Groundhog Day, February 2nd. And they give us a couple of bullet points in speech form for how they feel about Bungie. And let's just talk about what they say. First of all, they say, as a longtime partner of Bungie, we have discussed various forms of collaboration with them in the past. Ultimately, we decided to pursue an acquisition because we gained confidence that we could grow even more by combining the corporate cultures of both companies, as well as our strengths in the creative space. 
Once part of SIE, Sony Interactive Entertainment, Bungie will operate as an independent studio and will continue to publish its content on platforms other than PlayStation. Here I want to take a pause because a number of people have come into my videos or elsewhere on the internet and said, sure, they're saying that right now, but I'd say anything to get $3.6 billion, etc., etc. This is Sony telling its investors who it would be very unwise to lie to on a legal basis that they should be prepared for Bungie to continue to release their content on platforms other than PlayStation. That doesn't completely eliminate the possibility of exclusives or timed exclusives or various other ways that Bungie could operate within the PlayStation ecosystem, but they are telling their investors that this was not the purchase of an exclusive right to Bungie titles, so they should value it accordingly. That's an important part of the story. As we proceed with what they have to say, they say the strategic significance of this acquisition lies not only in obtaining the highly successful Destiny franchise, as well as major new IP that Bungie is currently developing, which we think is important, as we talked about in that earlier video, but also in incorporating into the Sony group the expertise and technology that Bungie has developed in the live game services space. So you might have seen online folks like uh, Michael Pachter talking about how he feels this is wildly overvalued, and it might be based only on the Destiny IP that we know about and the revenue that Bungie is currently generating. But Sony has, since the start of this particular transaction announcement and continuing through conversations with its investors, highlighted what we might otherwise call the synergies associated with this particular process, that we have a lot of resources, we have a lot of game developers at Sony that are making a lot of things, but what we didn't have is anybody that had succeeded at making a wildly successful live game service, which, of course, Bungie has through their Destiny project. So it's not just Destiny, it's enhancing the institutional knowledge of Sony, which they think will have a multiplying effect for the revenues that they can generate throughout their game space as we see in the next bullet. Through close collaboration between Bungie and the PlayStation Studios, we aim to launch more than 10 live services games by the fiscal year ending March 31st, 2026, fiscal year 25. And so you look at that and you say, okay, Sony has seen the forest and the trees and believes live services is a place to go get revenue. They're not wrong there, even though a lot of them fail. And so they want to buoy their chances of not failing by bringing in a team that has had a modicum of success or more than a modicum with the Destiny project. That's where they see the value here. Additionally, through this acquisition, we intend to acquire new users and increase engagement on platforms other than PlayStation, which will enable us to significantly advance our long-term growth strategy of further expanding the ecosystem of our game business. Sure, if I can put the PlayStation Studios logo on a game that's operating on Xbox, maybe put a little other lean to towards coming over to the PlayStation ecosystem, maybe that's helpful in and of itself. It will be very interesting to see how these cross-platform hardware-owned companies start interacting with each other on a marketing basis and otherwise going forward into the future. But we talked in that first video about Bungie having visions of grandeur, having movies and lunchboxes and books and everything else associated with their IP. Sony has visions of grandeur, taking the Bungie information, the technological expertise, and making live services games as far as the eye can see. And maybe that doesn't sound great to you, especially from the last bastion of AAA single-player game-making, but... It is a revenue model that makes a somewhat sense, and it makes a lot of sense for bringing Bungie in to help them realize it. Which leads us to where everybody seems to be taking a very interesting stance from my perspective, and that is this last slide that I'm going to show you here, the accounting treatment of the acquisition of Bungie. So this blue line here, you can see $3.6 billion. Here we've got the consolidated statement purchase price here. This is how profit and loss is going to be shown. And this is consideration to be expensed. 
So I don't want to go deep into accounting here, primarily because I know enough to be dangerous. I'm not an accountant. I'm a corporate lawyer. But you can see what we're about to talk about, which is, hey, out of $3.6 billion, we're only going to record this chunk at the closing. That's all that's going to be paid out at closing. This chunk is going to be expensed. Well, what do you mean by all of that? Well, we can see in the slide approximately one third of the U.S. $3.6 billion acquisition consideration consists primarily of deferred payments to employee shareholders conditioned upon their continued employment and other retention incentives. So I can break this down a little bit for you. One, people have noted that's about $1.2 billion to a company that has fewer than 1,000 employees. Folks have started to do math and said, well, that's more than a million dollars per person. That's not how this is likely to work. We'll chat about that in just a second. But that it's deferred payments to not just employees, but employee shareholders. And those are gonna be based in like all likelihood on the amount of shares that they held when this closing takes place. So this is a retention bonus combined with a purchase price deferment. And that's one of the reasons why I have characterized this as a Sony win in the negotiations. And we'll talk about that as well. These amounts will be paid over the course of several years after the closing date and will be recorded as expenses, which means they will be associated with services rendered by the employees. And approximately two thirds of such payment will be expensed in the first two years after the closing date, which indicates to me, a little back of the envelope math, if two thirds is expensed in two years, chances are most of these retention bonus agreements are based on a three-year term that you would get three years out and you'd probably have payments, my guess would be annually, uh, splitting this up so that two thirds is expensed on that second anniversary, you'd have one third remaining and it would be on that third anniversary. That's all speculation, but when you see these bullet points together, it speaks to me that you're looking at not milestone-based retention, but primarily staying at the company, doing whatever it is you're doing to be paid out over the course of three years. Now we get a few bullets on that from the company itself. Bungie is a private company the majority of whose shares are owned by its employees. So the payment of the consideration is structured to incentivize the shareholders and other creative talent to continue working at Bungie after the acquisition closes. So you see here reference to other creative talent. It's not just going to be the shareholders. There will be key employees that work at Bungie that maybe don't have that high level shareholding that they still value at Sony for whatever expertise they have. They want to make sure they stay in the company. Approximately one-third of the $3.6 billion U.S. consideration for the acquisition consists primarily of those deferred payments conditioned on continued employment, just like we talked about. These amounts will be paid over the course of several years after the acquisition closes and will be recorded as expenses for accounting purposes, and we expect that two-thirds of these deferred payments will be expensed in the first two years. So this is the information that we have, and there's a couple of ways to look at this. This $3.6 billion number is the purchase price. And a number of Bungie employees have to wait up to three years to get a big chunk of it. Or it's a $2.4 billion purchase price. This is the real value of the company. And Bungie bent Sony over your favorite table or hard surface of choosing. And they actually acquired an extra $1.2 billion. Or Sony's giving it to them out of the generosity of their hearts. Now, I could tell you, looking at this and what was done here, that this is significantly larger than a usual retention bonus. We're going to look at some documents to back me up on that. You don't have to take my word for it. And so that suggests to me that this is effectively purchase price that got deferred. 
Remember how negotiations work. They aren't just one side or the other. I've talked in these videos about how Bungie won significant concessions by being declared independent, by saying that they get to choose where they publish, that Sony that owns them doesn't get that control. We see here Sony telling their investors this. So there is significant contractual and legal binding around that concept that Bungie has gone out with. But it doesn't mean that they won every single point. They would have been negotiating around this. So if we do believe that both Sony and Bungie, by the time they're signing this deal, think that the entity's worth $3.6 billion, then it's pretty easy to understand how this is a Sony win, right? All other things being equal, if you're an employee at Bungie and you have a portion of the company that's worth $3.6 billion, you'd prefer to get all of that upfront in cash. That is better for you. A hamburger today is better than one tomorrow, right? And instead, you're saying a third of the cost is actually going to be deferred out three years or more. You know, we're just positing that three years is the number here, but that it's going to be deferred out. I'm not going to have it. It's not going to be in my bank account, even though that's what Sony thinks this company is worth. And it's going to be conditioned on me continuing to work here and not otherwise having problems with that work or deciding to move on. Sony's worried that if you give this employee group $2.4 billion that a number of them are going to say, yeah, I want to leave. So we need to make this purchase price big enough to make sure that they don't. But it's not a normal retention bonus. Now let's see how it's been reported on. This is actually what drew me to make this video in the first place. Here's Paul Tassi at Forbes, does a lot of good work, but he puts out a lot of content. So sometimes he gets things, in my opinion, wrong. And he says, as part of Sony's quarterly report this week, we got an additional piece of the puzzle as to why exactly Bungie cost them $3.6 billion. And the more we hear about this, the more it seems like Bungie's side managed to negotiate an extremely good deal for itself and its employees. We've now learned that while $2.4 billion of the deal is to buy Bungie's private shares, the remaining $1.2 billion is going to be paid directly to employee shareholders as part of incentives to get them to stay with the company after the acquisition. Now, that's roughly accurate, but remember how Sony is referring to this. It's deferred payments of the acquisition consideration. Now, you don't have to believe them. You can think Bungie is really only worth 2.4, and this is all kind of snow on this, and we'll talk about some of the tax considerations. Certainly, Forbes is reading it as Bungie going and getting an extra billion dollars out of nowhere. This is potentially huge. The napkin math works out to $1.3 million a person, but that's obviously not how the distribution will work. Yep, it's definitely not going to work that way, Forbes. And they, they point out to this slide, and they say, some have heard what their payouts may be already, celebrating that they can finally pay off student loans or afford a down payment on a house. I'm also hearing Bungie employees may get free PS5s as a bonus, though it's unclear when those would arrive due to all the shortages. I do like massive amount of money, and then, hey, they might also get PS5s. Sure, sure. This deal has valued Bungie at $4 million an employee far above what we usually hear in acquisitions like this. I'll tell you this. I have never, ever, ever in my decade plus of doing mergers and acquisitions referred to the acquisition price by dollar amount over employee. These companies are companies on the whole. Key employees are very important. Certain senior leadership is very important, but I haven't seen a single party ever value a company at dollar amount by employees. So this is a weird bit of math here. Uh, and certainly the employees at Bungie are not valued at $4 million individually by Sony. But this is what comes out from Forbes. And then this gets repeated in this kind of tone in various places, right? You've got Sony is spending over a billion dollars to ensure Bungie employees don't leave. Whatever it is that Bungie is cooking in addition to Destiny 2 must be pretty goddamn special because Sony is spending $1.2 billion on ensuring the developer staff don't leave. Remember, retention bonuses and contracts are very, very normal. You can bet that 
Xbox has retention contracts with the ZeniMax folks and retention contracts will be entered into with the Activision folks. That's how this works. But this is getting reported on very specifically because of this high level number, which to me says something almost the opposite of how Forbes and Push Square here and others are reporting on it. You see this on Twitter. 1.2 billion of the 3.6 billion Sony paid to Bungie is to keep the employees from leaving. Seems very odd, excessive even. So 2.4 billion is the real acquisition cost. The remaining 1.2 billion is please don't go money. 1.2 billion would be ridiculous for just a retention bonus. As we'll see what the normal retention budget is in just a second. So anybody reading it as solely retention money, I have to believe is either being deliberately obfuscatory or just doesn't understand how these things work. This can realistically only be purchase price moved over and Bungie having to wait to get paid until it delivers something to Sony over the course of a number of years, rather than getting paid all up front and Sony walking into Bungie headquarters and finding a tumbleweed past their vision as they enter the empty building. So, as I often do, I took it upon myself to say, you all aren't really gonna make me do a video on retention bonuses, are you? And of course, this wound up being my most liked, retweeted and commented on comment of I believe the entire month. And lo, you are, blessed here with a retention bonus video. So how normal are these things? Welcome to the world of corporate mergers and acquisitions law. I've pulled up on your screen a document entitled The State of M&A Retention Agreements in 2017, Smart, Selective, and Strategic Insights from the 2017 Global M&A Retention Study. And if that sounded boring to you, I don't blame you. We're going to try to make it entertaining as much as we can. But this is the kind of document that we lawyers are reading all the time. We call it a deal points memo or some others just call it documents. <laughs> but as we continue here, this is essentially just a research review of how companies that are successful in retaining their employees use retention agreements. To say, for example, the first step many companies often take to become digital is to buy a company whose talent has the ability to drive transformation. As a result, key talent retention remains a top priority issue for most dealmakers. Nobody wants to be left having paid a bunch of money and having everybody gone by the time that money is paid. And you see here, the reason I highlighted this is it's a reference to what Sony is actually doing here. They want to transition into more of a live services business model. And they looked for people that were good at that. They lived at Bungie. And so you see the price that you see. Now, who is targeted for retention since Paul at Forbes raised this? Principal targets are senior leaders, which include top executives and direct reports, about 54%, and other employees with key skills that could affect the success of the transaction. So ordinarily, if you're writing a merger agreement or you're looking at this because you're in law school or corporate law yourself, you'll see reference to the fact that key employees need to be identified by the target. These are the employees that we need to make darn sure stay at the company. They are the ones that are likely to be entering into separate executive agreements, transition services agreements, retention bonus pool participation, whatever that is. And that's top executives, senior folks that make the company what it is on a personality level. And then the folks that have the key skills that actually make this thing go. And it's split about evenly between those two for retention. What information is used to identify them? Almost all acquirers frequently turn to the target senior leaders to identify those employees. It's part of the drafting process. This would have been done going into signing the agreement that was announced so recently. What is the most common type of retention award? Cash bonuses remain the primary financial award and retention agreements for senior leaders and other key employees. The median retention budget declined from 1.9% of the total purchase price in 2014 to under 1% likely reflecting higher average deal values as equity markets rose. Understand what we're talking about here. If it were solely retention, is a retention budget of 33%. This sentence says that the average retention budget is 1%, which 
I can basically vouch for. That's about the amount that you would see going out directly to employees to make sure they stay as separate from buying the company itself. That's why when you see Xbox talk about buying ZeniMax, talking about buying Activision, they have a number there that is just the number for buying the equity. Those are public companies. That's what shareholders are going to get. And they don't really reference the retention concept because that would be separately negotiated as part of making sure they get value out of the assets that they actually bought. They don't even go into it, which means that when Sony says it's a $3.6 billion acquisition inclusive of retention, that is actually a different number from what Microsoft means when they talk about 7.5 billion or they talk about the 60 some odd billion that they spend buying Activision. So they're actually slightly changing things. And you have to ask the question, why did Sony write it that way? I would argue that it's because they wanna be seen as big and bad and 3.6 shows better than 2.4. Even though 2.4 might be slightly more attractive to their investors in a press release like that, they want 3.6 to be known because that is the actual number that they think is gonna go out the door going to be a little less than that because not every employee winds up staying, winds up getting their full retention bonus. But that 3.6 number is inclusive of something that Microsoft isn't regularly including in their press releases. Now, you can check this document out for yourself. Like I said, it's a little bit boring if you're not negotiating these deals, but I wanted to make sure we got some of these stats out there. Since 2014, the use of time-based agreements for senior executives has grown while performance-only plans have decreased, meaning There are ways to write a retention bonus that says, if you stay here past the first anniversary, you get a money, second anniversary, you get money, third anniversary, you get money. That's time-based. Or you have to hit a specific earnings amount. You have to do something specific. You have to make sure this game launches, that kind of thing. Those can exist, but they're a little bit less frequently used than just this timing component. We have reason to believe that the retention bonuses in this particular case are timing-based because they reference the fact that they believe two-thirds will be out in two years, implying that they are three-year kind of conditional retention agreements. What's the right budget for retention bonuses? Now, this is an important one. More than half of acquirers have a retention budget of less than 1% of the total transaction cost, and this tends to go down as they get higher. The higher the deal value in general, the lower the relative size of the retention budget because you're still talking to human beings. And if you're buying a $400 billion entity, they don't actually need more than 1% of that to get a lot of money in that retention agreement. So that number goes down, but you see 1%, 1 to 2, 2 to 3, all these up to 10 to 20, how many are greater than 20% in pure retention budget? Zero in this analysis. Now we have to take it with a grain of salt. This is a statement from 2017. Deals have certainly changed in the last five years, certainly after the pandemic, and these things could be moving around. But 33% would be a very large number to ascribe solely to just benefiting the employees on a retention basis, which means that when Sony says that $1.2 billion is part of the purchase price that's deferred to employees to make them stay for three years, I think we should read it as accurate, that that's a Sony win. Bungie gets its control provisions. Bungie gets a lot of money. Its employees get paid. But Sony is holding back a third of the purchase price in order to pay it out over a three-year period from closing. It also tends to match with the notion of something like a third. That's a clean mathematical type of concept that Sony would have used in negotiations at the table. In our experience, companies that determine retention eligibility and target values independently from individual earnings upon sale are more effective at retaining their targeted employees than those that tinker with individual values, which is legalese way of saying you want to keep things relatively equal. You want to have things that go out in those agreements that treat people relatively the same and not start moving around everybody's retention bonuses on an individual basis because that tends to make things a little bit more frictionful. Beyond the bonus, keeping employees over the long term 
While 79% of respondents indicated that they are able to retain a high percentage of employees, over 80% for the full retention period, we know from previous research that only about half of those maintain that rate one year later. Now, you've seen videos here in Virtual Legality where we've talked about the fact that, hey, you see three people leave all at once and it's exactly six months after a deal went down or a year or two years. That tends to look like a retention bonus period ending. As you can imagine, once you get all those dollars out, you once again have that inflection point where you say, let me evaluate my life. I wound up getting paid a lot more money than I ever expected from Sony. I have a lot of money in the bank account. Do I want to do this? And at least a material portion of those people will say, I'm rich. No, I don't want to do this every day. Maybe I'll consult for the company. Maybe I'll do something else, but I don't want to do this every day. So they wait out their retention, especially when there's a third of the value of the company put into it. And then what I would expect to see is the three-year anniversary of the closing of this deal, some folks leaving. So when this actually closes, let's keep track of what the third anniversary is and see exactly what happens with Bungie employees on that third anniversary. Now, this actually goes forward to give advice to potential companies, says, hey, you need to build employee engagement, develop and communicate a positive culture, work individually with everyone because you've gotten this three-year window, you've purchased it. You might as well try to see if you can get people to stick at the company if you think that they are valuable. And that's really what retention bonuses are all about. And that's what I wanted to highlight here. But the other aspect of this that I wanted to highlight, in case you just think I'm blowing smoke about purchase price and whatnot, is the notion itself of what is happening in the Sony transaction. So I've pulled up another article from another law firm, Baker McKenzie, using purchase price as a retention tool. Hey, that's an actual strategy. Who knew? I did. We've done it in deals before, but that's okay. Perhaps the most straightforward method for achieving purchase price retention is to simply withhold a portion of the purchase price otherwise payable to the management shareholder at closing and instead pay it over time based on a vesting schedule tied to continued employment with the buyer post-closing, typically ranging from 24 to 48 months, two to four years. Hey, we hit that nail on the head. It looks like we have a three-year retention window, not for just management shareholders, but for every employee shareholder because their employee shareholders. Now, there is a significant downside to the treatment for U.S. public companies in that U.S. generally accepted accounting principles will require such payments to be categorized as compensation, which is what we saw with the compensation expense recognized over the vesting period, even if the tax treatment described below is capital gains. So we saw Sony say they're going to expense this because it's related to the services to be provided. And we saw that that matches up exactly with a holdback of the purchase price at a third level because we're concerned about you all just walking away. Third, it allows buyers to conserve cash while still cashing out the non-management shareholders, albeit at the cost of additional dilution. Now, that's not actually happening here, but they can conserve cash over a longer period of time. And what have we been talking about with respect to Microsoft and the acquisition war and all of this? It's that Sony doesn't have the cash cannons that Microsoft does. Sony has all sorts of issues with its financial balance sheet. So when they say $3.6 billion, that's a big number. But if they can make it 2.4 originally, and then they can amortize the rest of the cost over three years, expense that out, and as we'll see, get potentially a tax advantage from that, then that's what the company did. So you had financial considerations on Sony's behalf and control considerations on Bungie's behalf. From a tax perspective, this article continues, the goal of a purchase price holdback arrangement is to provide management shareholders with both a deferral of tax until the time that future payment of the purchase price is received and taxation at capital gains rate. On the first point, holdback arrangements are often structured to delay tax recognition until future payment is received based on the applicable tax law. But if the heldback amounts are required to be taxed at the closing of the transaction, the parties will ensure that a sufficient portion of non-heldback purchase price is paid to the shareholders at closing in order to satisfy their tax 
obligations. That isn't happening here because as we saw, these things are going to get expensed. The held back amount may be treated as purchase price consideration and taxed that capital gain rate, the lower rate, unless it is determined that the payments are being made to the management shareholders in connection with the performance of services, in which case they should be treated as compensation income, which is broadly defined in the code in various contexts without necessarily distinguishing the form of compensation provided and taxed at ordinary income rates. Ton of legalese, I know, but I wanted to get this concept out because it's important to understand when Sony gets a win and when Bungie gets a win. In every way that I can look at this deal, this is a Sony win. This is taking $3.6 billion and spreading it out over three years with two thirds at closing and the other third spread out equally over the last third, uh, over the next three years. That makes total sense for what is described to us and is not Bungie getting a great deal. It's Bungie effectively yielding that they will give up capital gains, that they will take ordinary income that will be expensed to the benefit of Sony in order to get the control provisions and to get to this number. It is not Sony being generous. It is not Sony being kind. It is not Bungie bending them over a table or other hard surface of your choice. It is the way negotiations are handled. Retention bonuses, enormously normal, as we saw in this document, normal for everybody to retain employees, especially in a creative endeavor, because that's what you're buying. But it's normal at a 1% to 2% level, not a 33% level. What is happening here? It's a holdback of the purchase price in order to combine Sony's risk with Bungie's and make them rowing the same direction in the same boat. So everybody that talks about this, please do share this video around because there is articles and there are social media posts going out there that don't make a ton of sense to someone like me who knows how these things work. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoyed this video, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. We can't do it without viewers like you, without listeners like you. Check that out and support the channel. I did also want to mention that as I talked about earlier this week, I have joined Seasoned Gaming's BitCast uh, for at least the near future, the near term, the midterm. We're going to see how it all works out, but BitCast 189, I think, will be Sunday at 11 o'clock Eastern. Go subscribe over there. We've already driven I think 200, 200 plus subscribers over there. Uh, and I think it would be great if we could hit 10,000, show virtual legalities, community, getting over there and supporting that channel. I think it's gonna be fantastic if you love what we talk about here. There's a lot of analytical-minded folks, a lot of calm, intelligent discussion about video games. We're gonna have a great time over there. Otherwise, just consider subscribing, telling your friends that we're having these conversations, putting this on Twitter, on Reddit, in the forums that you find yourselves. Every little bit helps. Every little bit gets more subscribers. And those more subscribers make YouTube happy and make YouTube more likely to share it with more and more people. It's a snowball effect. You help us out every single time that you do it. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.